Amen. If you got your Bible, go ahead and snag it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We are in a series called Unshakable. Uh, we are discovering how to build a faith that cannot be shaken. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are circumstances, there are moments in life uh, where, where my faith sometimes gets a little shaky, uh, where sometimes I start to question what's going on around me, where sometimes I start to wonder, God, where are you at? God, what are you doing? God, how did I end up here? I thought I was going here. I thought I was in this direction, and somehow we have deviated far from course. Uh, so, sometimes those things are my own fault and responsibility, uh, but sometimes it's just life. Sometimes it's the brokenness of this world. Sometimes I believe it's even God's plan where he was taking me somewhere I didn't realize he was taking me. And along the route, sometimes I get a little shaky. Sometimes I get a little, a little doubtful. Sometimes I get a little concerned when I don't realize where he's bringing me. And so how do we build a faith that doesn't get thrown by those things? How do we build a faith that, that is able to withstand a bad diagnosis? That's able to stand tension in our marriage. That's able to withstand interpersonal drama with that person at work or at school or wherever it may be. How do we build that kind of faith that cannot be shaken? We've been journeying through Hebrews 11, which is really the, the hall of faith. Excuse me. It's this incredible record of, of men and women who have gone before us and this way that God used them, the way that God used their faith. We're going to finish that chapter today. And start the first three verses in Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll uh, do Hebrews 12 the next two weeks to finish up our series. So we're journeying through this idea. I want to remind you of this quote that we shared last week, which I think is so, for me, so foundational in my goal, in my vision for this series. I heard this quote and it just got me so fired up and I hope it fires you up as well. It is this, it says, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. Even if we just cut it off right there, that's a pretty awesome statement. Jesus Christ dwells within me through his Holy Spirit, but he isn't just in me. He delights to be in me. He delights to be with me. I am one in whom he dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable. Everybody say unshakable. unshakable. The kingdom that we live in is not shaky. It's not mediocre. It's not up and down. It's not on a roller coaster. The kingdom we dwell in has a foundation of a rock. The rock of ages, Jesus Christ. And because he's that foundation, this kingdom cannot be shaken. I live in that kingdom. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And then it closes with this, and this is my favorite part of the whole thing. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. I don't know who needs that reminder this morning, but I need that reminder this morning. Man, my morning went sideways in a couple different ways already today, and, and, and God is just reminding me that, hey, even when things don't go the way you expect them to or the way you want them to, or even when things are, there, there's some technical challenges and some things that don't work the way they're supposed to, I got this. I'm good, and if the kingdom's good, if God's good, then I'm in his kingdom, then I'm good. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. Look at the person next to you and say, I am not in trouble. Look at the other person and say, you're not in trouble. 
We are not in trouble. The kingdom of God is not in trouble. Regardless of political climates, regardless of cultural trends, regardless of what you see on social media or what debate you entered into or what happened to your ACL this week, Corey Pilcher, the kingdom of God is not in trouble and neither am I. Amen? Amen. So we're going to journey through the book of Hebrews, through Hebrews chapter 11, uh, and we're going to see a shift this morning in tone. Up until this point in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews, who, who as we've shared, is the most technically gifted Greek author in Scripture. Uh, we're, we're pretty confident. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we're pretty confident it wasn't an individual who wrote anything else in the New Testament because their writing is so clean and so pure. Most of the other New Testament authors were not Greek speakers by, by, by nature. They wrote in Greek because that was the language of the empire, but they didn't grow up with Greek. They grew, grew up speaking Aramaic. And so their Greek was not flawless. Be like if, if you learned another language and you wrote a book in that other language, like that's impressive, right? So this is not to diss the other biblical authors. If you're writing a book in your second language, you're doing something pretty good. I'm, I couldn't do that. Um, but this person seems to have grown up with Greek. Their, their Greek is clean and pure and flawless, uh, and their book that they've written is very calculated. You, you can pretty much put it on an outline, and you see the bullet points. And if you've noticed in Hebrews 11, there's a pace, there's a tempo. It's almost as if it were written in iambic pentameter, right? It's just, here's what's, here's a bullet point, so-and-so did this, they were rewarded for it. So-and-so did this, and this, and this, and it was rewarded by faith, and, and there's this tempo, and then everything shifts, so what's about to happen is we're going to see the author of Hebrews go from this technically gifted writing into what I call preacher mode. Uh, I don't know if you ever noticed, we, we have an element in our service we call the exhortation. Uh, now it's before that last song, Dwindle did it today. Used to be after our last song, but we're, man, we're just going to bring worship to a, to a climax. Man, we're going to put a cherry on top of it. We're going to fire you up. We're going to preach, right? And so the exhortation, a lot of times, especially when it's done well, man, we, we shift into preacher mode. And it's like, we might have an idea of what we're going to say, an idea of where we're going to go, but man, we're just going to get up here and let the Holy Spirit spill out, right? And we're just going to preach, and we're going to drive it home, and we're going to get fired up, and we're going to celebrate that our God is good. Well, this is what we're going to see the author of Hebrews do. Because uh, you're going to see, instead of these two little verse or two little sentence paragraphs that are very clean and very neat, this is going to be one big long run-on sentence. Uh, and so this is a long paragraph where he just gets fired up and he just goes or she just goes stream of consciousness. So journey with me into Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32. The author says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. This is encouraging to me, by the way, because uh, how often do I feel, man, I don't have time to say this other part of this message. Man, there's this other thing I want to get into. There's this other thing I want to dig into. Even the biblical authors inspired by the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago, even they had a limit. Even they had a point where they said, you know what, I want to tell you about all this other stuff, but that stuff isn't really important. You don't really need that stuff. I got to keep it to the point. I got to keep the main thing, the main thing. So he says, I don't have time to get into all these stories as much as I would love to. Who through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. Who's that sound like? Not a trick question. Who's that sound like? Daniel, Daniel shut the mouths of lions, right? God actually did it for him, but it happened in his story. They quenched the fury of the flames. Who's that sound like? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not a trick question. This is, this is Sunday School 101, right? So he's referring to these people without actually name-dropping them in this section. Um, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. Hold on to that. Who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. First thing I want you to write down today about unshakable faith is that unshakable faith turns weakness into strength. I don't know what your weakness is today. I don't know what area you feel a little exposed in. What area you say, you know what, that's, that's where my faith struggles. That's where I have a hard time believing God. That's where I have a hard time serving God. Man, I'm pretty good in these areas over here, but if I was to be real honest, if you, if you put the microscope on my faith, here's where I struggle. We serve a God who can take that struggle who can take that weakness, who can take that failure, who can take that area where you seem to feel defeat, and he can actually turn it into your strength. I don't know about you, but I need that encouragement today because I got some weakness because I got some areas that aren't very strong. I got some areas that aren't where they need to be, where I believe God wants them to be, and I don't have to settle for them being struggles forever. I don't have to struggle for them being weaknesses forever. I can offer them to God and bring them to the light and allow him to breathe on them, and he can actually take my weakness and turn it into a strength for his glory. Amen? An unshakable faith turns weakness into strength. Verse 35, it says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Multiple times in Scripture, at least three that I can think of off the top of my head, we see this exactly happen. Elijah raises a boy back to life for a widow. Elisha raises a boy back to life for a widow. Jesus raises a boy back to life for his mother. At least three times in Scripture, we see exactly this, that women received back their dead raised to life again. We could also probably include Mary and Martha who received back their brother, Lazarus, right? So multiple ex times in scripture, women received back their dead, raised to life again. And then everything changes. In the midst of this powerful preaching moment, in the midst of all the victory and all the success and all the weakness turned to strength and all the resurrection and all the life and the lion's mouths are shut and the fury of the flames is quenched and all these huge, supernatural, victorious moments where God showed up big, the author continues. He says there were others. There were others who were tortured refusing to be released so they might, they might gain an even better resurrection. 34 talks about an earthly resurrection. 35 talks about people who lost their life on earth believing for a better resurrection. Verse 36, some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. See, it didn't go perfect for all of them. Unshakable faith did not make it work out beautifully for everyone. For some it did, but for some it went in a different direction. Verse 37, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. In the midst of the most famous, 
most powerful passage on believing God for great things, on God using our faith and building our faith and doing the supernatural, doing what only God can do. The author of Hebrews pauses and says, I'd be remiss if all I told you about were the great earthly stories. If all I told you about were the victories, if all I told you was people who believed God and he showed up and provided because in every situation, that's not always what happens. Sometimes God has a deeper purpose. Sometimes God has a different plan and he makes it clear, he's going to in just a moment, that these people who it didn't go so beautifully for here on earth, it wasn't because they had a lack of faith. Sometimes we think that we're going through a struggle, we're going through a valley, we're going through a challenge because we just didn't believe God enough. And I believe sometimes that's the case. I believe there are are problems that we have because we're not believing God big enough. Why am I teaching you on faith? I want to increase your faith. I want you to believe God for bigger things. I want you to see God do more stuff in your life. That's why we set this whole idea this year of making room, this whole concept that, man, God wants to do more in my life than he's doing right now. Right? God isn't content with where my life's at. God believes that there's something better for me and something better for you. So let's stretch our faith and raise it. But we tell an incomplete story when we suggest that faith produces everything we want here on earth all the time. Because it's not the reality. And most of us, if we take an honest look at our life, we've learned this lesson already. Last week, we had two families go to funerals of loved ones who took their own life. Was that because they had a lack of faith? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's why. I think it's because this world is broken, and this world has fallen, and this world is full of lies of the enemy that he speaks into people's minds, and sometimes we buy into them, and sometimes we do awful things to others, and sometimes we do awful things to ourselves. But I don't think that's because somebody around them had a lack of faith. Sometimes life goes sideways. Sometimes life is difficult, and it's not because our faith is lacking. Follow along with me, starting in verse 38. Maybe my favorite little clause in all the Bible, certainly my favorite epitaph, it says this about all these people that it just talked about, that that it didn't go well for, that they were stoned to death, that were put to death by the sword, uh, that went about in sheep sins and goat skins, that were destitute, that were persecuted, that were mistreated. All these people they just listed, it's going to say these incredibly powerful words about. It says, the world was not worthy of them. Seven words. To sum up their experience, what a powerful statement. Can you imagine getting to the end of your life and the Holy Spirit, who is ultimately the author of Hebrews, who is ultimately giving this passage to the person who wrote that down, the Holy Spirit says about you, Zach, the world was not worthy of you. Bailey. The world was not worthy of you. Brandy, the world was not worthy of you. Can you imagine God himself summarizing your life with those seven words? I just want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? Like, I just want to make it in. But there's a level beyond, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's a faith even beyond, well done, my 
there's a faith where God himself says the world wasn't even worthy. Right? Like, like mind-blowing gift. Like, insert your favorite little one right here, right? Like, wow, what a statement that God would make about man. That you could transcend your generation. That you could outlive your culture to a level where God says, well, the people who got to interact with you, the people who got to, to receive the blessing of your faith, they weren't even worthy. That's a crazy statement. In my opinion, that is the strongest statement Scripture makes anywhere about humans, about any individual, that the world was not worthy of them. I want a faith like that. Not so I can puff out my chest and say, I was better than you, and you weren't worthy of me. I just want the greatest faith that I can have. I want the faith that God looks down on and smiles and is proud of and says, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yes, that's why I put you in that generation. Yes, that's what I planned for you before the creation of the world. I knew you were going to come and you were going to live up to the incredible opportunities I gave you. I want that kind of faith. And I hope and I pray that there's something in your heart, something in your spirit that leaps at that statement, that realizes I was created for more than I'm living to right now. I was created with a purpose beyond what I've lived up to to this point, and I'm not going to settle, and I'm not going to be satisfied until I'm walking in the very best that God has for me. And if we get there, and I believe we can go there together. In fact, I believe it will be a whole lot easier if we go there together than if we try to go there on our own. God could look down and say, the world wasn't even worthy. Wow. God, give us that kind of faith. God, give me that kind of faith where I could live for you despite circumstances going badly, despite culture bringing persecution and destitution and mistreatment, despite not everything going the way that I want it to go, that I stand on the rock of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and I continue to move forward towards God's best no matter what happens around me. The world was not worthy of them. What I love about that statement, apart from just how incredible it is, is who it was assigned to. He didn't assign the world was not worthy of them to the ones who saw God do the great miracles. It actually assigned that to the ones who didn't, to the ones who believed for something that they didn't get to walk in, that they didn't get to experience here on earth. Those were the ones who he said the world wasn't even worthy. Man, because they continued to persevere despite the struggle, despite the pain, despite what seemed like failure around them. They were the ones the world was not worthy of. It says they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Write this down if you're taking notes, and I hope you are. The world is not worthy of those who live with true, unshakable faith. That's a vision right there. That's a goal. That's a target for us to pursue, to bring our faith to a new level where God would look down and say something like that. Verse 39. These, talking about those who did not see the miracles, 
that they believed God for. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, what is it talking about when it says received what had been promised? What he's, the author here is talking about is he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. All these Old Testament saints we just read about, man, they were believing God for a Messiah that they never got to see with their own eyes. They were believing God for a salvation that they never got to experience this side of eternity. They were trusting God for something that they never actually got to set their eyes on or walk in in this life, yet they continued to believe him anyway, even though the generations before them didn't receive it either. They didn't let that faith fade. They didn't say, well, I guess it's not going to happen. Well, I guess God changed his mind. Well, I guess the prophets of old were crazy. I guess it wasn't really supposed to happen. I guess we just made it all up. They continued to trust God for something that they never saw. Remember what we saw earlier in Hebrews 11? Faith is being certain of that which is hoped for, right? Man, it's trusting and hoping for what we cannot see. That's what faith is. These people had faith for something they never saw. They never saw Jesus, not before they died. Now, they saw him on the other side. They saw him in the next life, but they didn't see him here on earth, but they believed in him anyway. Jesus told Thomas, you've believed because you've seen. Blessed is the one who believes, who has not seen. There's a blessing for us if you believe in Jesus and you haven't seen Jesus with your own two eyes, and I haven't seen him with my own two eyes, but I've seen him move. But I've seen him impact my life. I've seen him do things. There's a great blessing for us. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Why? Since God had something planned for them. God had planned something better, not just for them, but for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, that word perfect, when you see it in the New Testament, it means whole. It means complete, that they would be made whole, they would be complete together with us. So understand this, God's plan for the unshakable involves us. Think about this. God's perfect plan for Daniel involved you. God's perfect plan for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego involved you. God's perfect plan for David involved you. They weren't supposed to experience it on their own, but God says, I've got a whole family of God. I've got generations of believers that I'm bringing into this. I'm not just going to use Israel. I'm not just going to use the Jews, but I'm going to use you too, and I'm bringing you in. I'm grafting you in. I'm combining you in. And so God's plan for these heroes, for Rahab, for Noah, for these incredible men and women who he used in massive ways, it didn't stop with them, but his plan actually involved Brenda, right? His plan actually involved Mark. It actually involved me. That's pretty amazing. I think we underestimate how big God's plan is sometimes. We miss out on, on how beautiful his plan is, on how communal it is. We, in our American individualism, we talk a lot about God's plan for my life. God's plan for me, and I do believe God has a plan for my life, and he does have a plan for you. I'm not saying the individual doesn't exist, but I think a lot of times we miss out on the plan for we. He got a plan for us. He's got a plan for City Church. He's got a plan for Olive Branch. He's got a plan for Memphis. He's got a plan for the United States of America. He's got a plan for Gen Z. He's got a plan for a generation. He's got a plan for the globe. He's got a plan for us. 
fact, his plan even transcends generations to involve us in with the generations gone by. And we see that as the, tra- the chapter transitions into chapter 12. Here's what I believe. I believe that the next three verses should be part of chapter 11. Now, verse breaks and chapter breaks are not inspired of God. Those were things that came hundreds of years after the Bible was written, where people came back and they broke it down to make it easier to find stuff. And I'm grateful that they did. I'm not trying to criticize the people who did this. Man, the Bible would be a lot more difficult to read if it was like, just open to Hebrews uh, and let's go down to the 75th paragraph, right? (laughs) Praise God uh, that, that we can go to Hebrews and go to chapter 11 and go to chapter 12. I'm grateful. That was a good plan. That was a good vision. It wasn't written with chapters and verses, though. And so sometimes I think those chapter breaks and even the verse breaks uh, can be off. And here's one example. I think these next three verses belong with chapter 11 rather than chapter 12. It doesn't matter. It doesn't invalidate them. But we're going to read them today along with chapter 11. It says this. It says, therefore. Everybody say, therefore. Therefore. Told this joke many times, but it always applies. The old Bible scholar or Bible college professor said, anytime you see the word therefore, you got to ask, what is it? Therefore, okay, it's always referring back to what we just talked about. So because of all these incredible men and women, because of this unshakable faith that God has given, because there's even people who the world was not worthy of them, therefore, since we, everybody say we, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We could put it this way, because we stand on the shoulders of giants of men and women of unshakable faith because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We're not doing this on our own. We're not the first ones to conjure this up. We've had people go before us who served God and served him well, served him magnificently since we can look to their faith, since we can look to their example, since we've seen what God has done for them. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Two different things here. There's sin that easily entangles. Sin is anything we know, anything that we think, say, or do that is displeasing to God. Okay? So we got to throw off sin. we got to not be content with sin. That's why we say you're free to struggle because, man, we've all got sin. We've all got a challenge. It's not going to just instantly go away. It's a process. It's work. But we're not content with that sin. Oh, that's just the way I am. Oh, that's just my weakness. No, God will turn your weakness to strength. We don't accept it just because it's your weakness. We don't settle for it just because it's what you've struggled with before. We serve a God of restoration, a God of resurrection, a God of deliverance who will set us free. But he doesn't just say throw off sin. He says throw off everything that hinders. In other words, there's something that hinders that isn't sin. It's just a distraction. It's something that I give too big of a role in my life. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a sinful thing. It's not necessarily something I shouldn't have any of. But it's something I settle for too much of. Right? So he says, let us throw off everything that hinders. What's holding back your faith? Throw it off. Don't gently move away from it. He says, throw it off. Cast it off. Get rid of it. Cut it off. 
there have been seasons in my life where I've had to completely stop listening to secular music. I don't think you're going to hell if you listen to secular music. I think there's some secular music that's awesome, that, that fires me up, that inspires me. But there have been seasons in my life that if I listen to secular music, I'm going to listen to all the secular music. And if I'm going to listen to all the secular music, I'm going to listen to some stuff that ain't like Jesus. And so I've had to throw off that thing that hindered me. Not because all secular music is sinful, but there is some that's sinful. There is some that takes me somewhere. And so when I can't discern, when I can't separate, when I can't draw a line, then I've just got to draw the line way over here because I'm going to stay far away enough from the sin, right? Don't get me wrong. There's seasons where I haven't done that, and I should have. There's seasons where I've, where I've partaken, and we could apply that to a million different things. Whether it's our entertainment, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our hobbies, whether it's just how much time we devote to something that, that ultimately doesn't matter. One thing that I've heard said about our generation of men is that tragically so often we pour our hearts, our time, and our energy into being great at things that have no significance. I've been guilty of that with fantasy football. <laughs> Been guilty of that with, with insert hobby here. It's nothing wrong with fantasy football. I'll be playing fantasy football this year. But, but I had to scale back. There was a time I had to stop playing fantasy football because I was in too many leagues, right? <laughs> so I had too many teams and had too many podcasts and too much time worrying about something that literally does not matter. No eternal significance whatsoever, right? Um, that's <laughs> I've won way too many championships to allow you to say that. Um, so I am sadly too good at that game, and that's the problem. Um, so, Carolyn said imaginary championships. So everybody make sure you say goodbye to Carolyn today. So last day at City Church. Uh, He said, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run. Everybody say run. Sometimes I feel like my, my, my spiritual walk is like this. Man, I'm, I'm inching. I'm crawling. I'm barely moving. Sometimes I think I'm in the recliner. God says, I want you to run with perseverance, with endurance, the race marked out for us. There is a race marked out for us. There is a purpose for us, for our generation, for our church, for our lives. There is a race that God has already marked out for us. How do we do it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That word fixing means a lot more in the South than it does anywhere else. Do y'all know that? Growing up in Seattle, fixing something meant it was broken and you put it back together. Uh, in the South, man, fixing could be something you're about to do. Uh, it could be something you're doing to your hair. It could be something you're doing to food. Uh, you can fix all kinds of things in the South. Word of God says fixing your eyes on Jesus. Your eyes being fixed on Jesus means they're stuck there. I'm not looking to the right. I'm not looking to the left. I'm not looking down. I'm looking straight ahead. I'm running the race marked out with me with my eyes fixed on Jesus. 
Why? Because he is the pioneer. The other translation says the author, the creator, the initiator, and the perfecter of my faith. Other translation says the finisher. He's the one who brings it to completion. He's the one who brings it from the start, who brings it to the end. He started it. He's going to be faithful to finish it. But I got to keep my eyes on him. See, when my eyes waver, my faith wavers. But when all I see is Jesus... When all I see is him glorified, when all I see is his love, is his compassion, is his purpose, then I will run with perseverance, with endurance, the race that God has set out for me. It's easy for us to take our eyes off Jesus and put him a lot of other places. And when we do, we slow down. You ever, you ever made that mistake, like you're driving, and you reach over to, like, adjust the radio, and as soon as you do, you, start, you drift over to the side of the road? Just me, right? I'm the only one who's ever, ever drifted. You guys are all perfect drivers. Um, you, you, you look at something over here, you see a deer, and you're like, whoa, and all of a sudden, you're, like, almost in the ditch with the deer. Uh, why? Because you took your eyes off your destination. What does that do? It slows you down, and sometimes it causes wrecks. Sometimes it causes accidents. Sometimes there's, there's, there's some, sometimes it's costly, right? Sometimes it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's going to increase your insurance rates. There, there, there's a lot of things that go wrong when we take our eyes off the road. And I believe as believers in our generation, we're really good at taking our eyes off of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews 2,000 years ago, he knew that they were capable of it then. Remember, why is he writing this book? Because these are priests, People who had, had served faithfully in the Jewish faith who have now given their life to Jesus, given their faith to Jesus, and now they're starting to look, their eyes are wandering back. Man, it was easier over there. We didn't get persecuted over there. My family didn't think I was a traitor over there, man. Maybe I should go back. Excuse me. So their eyes started to wander. The author of Hebrews says, no. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. He is the one. If you will focus on him, you will run the race with endurance. Write this down. The faith of those who came before us should inspire us. He says we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. This great cloud of witnesses. And their faith should inspire us. That's why we've read about their stories, read about their accomplishments. Man, it should fire fire us up. Yes, I can do this. Yes, I can have a faith that's unshakable. Yes, I can live a life that the world is not worthy of. And then it continues in verse 12. It says, for the joy set before him. This is about Jesus. What did Jesus do? He endured. He endured the cross. Why? Because Jesus kept his eyes fixed on the Father. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he didn't do. He kept his eyes fixed where they need to be, so much so that he was able to endure the pain of the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, the cross was supposed to be a source of shame, but Jesus didn't let it be a source of shame. He takes weakness and turns it into strength. He turned to this cross, used to be a a, a picture of defeat. It used to be a symbol of, of pain, of destruction, of death. Jesus comes along, and now the cross is a symbol of life. The cross is a symbol of hope. The cross is a symbol of resurrection. Jesus takes that what the enemy intended for evil, and he uses it for good. He endured the cross, scorning his shame, and now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, him being Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Keep him at the forefront of your mind. 
If Jesus can go through everything he went through and he can finish the job faithfully, then maybe I can too. Why? Because Jesus did it through the strength of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us that same Holy Spirit. So if he could do it, I could do it. It's not that he just did it because he was God. He did it leaning on the Spirit of God who was in him, and he says, I'm going to send that same Spirit of God into you. Last thing to write down today. The faith of the one who came before us should inspire us. So we're inspired by those who came before us, the great cloud of witnesses. Man, they, 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 they fire us up. We get encouragement from them. If they could do it, we could do it. But even more than those, we get encouragement from Jesus himself. We're not named after all these other people, but we do wear the name of Jesus. We are little Christ. We are Christians. And if Jesus can do it, then the faith of the one who came before us should inspire us. Last thing I want to say before we pray is this, is that ultimately we have no excuse not to live with unshakable faith. God's given us everything we need for unshakable faith. Jesus has authored our faith. He's, he's started it. He's kick-started it for us. He's given us the example of men and women who lived incredible lives and did incredible things in the face of great adversity, and ultimately he's done it for us himself. We don't have any excuse. We have every tool, every resource that we need to live with unshakable faith. What are those tools? It's this thing right here. It's the word of God. It's prayer. It's the community of saints, our fellow brothers and sisters. We've got all the resources we need. So we just got to make a decision. I'm setting my feet in the ground, and I'm going to pursue and chase and race after Jesus. I'm fixing my eyes on the author and the perfecter of my faith, and I'm going somewhere in Jesus' name. My faith's going somewhere in Jesus' name. It's not staying where it is. It might be mediocre right now. It might be weak right now. It might be discouraged right now. But I serve a God who takes weakness and turns it into strength. And I believe in him, the author and the perfecter of my faith, that my faith is going somewhere. And I'm going somewhere with it.